Namotasa Bhagavato Rahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Rahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Rahato Sama Sambuddhasa Udham Tamang Sangang Namasami Respects and best wishes to the assembly. In appreciation of your ongoing efforts and commitment, practices, and continuing ongoing interest in uh, the Dhamma, using these teachings, these opportunities, these occasions to really look into the sources of where we're suffering, what we're holding on to, how letting go can happen how really to make it work for us. So, sometimes I come to this uh, time in retreat and I haven't really talked that much about, you know, about meditating. (laughs) Because you know how to meditate. (laughs) You just focus your mind on the breathing quiet down, stay with that, let go. There you go. <laughs> well, so we notice also that if you look in the, in the suttas, the collections of the Buddha's teachings, it doesn't talk about meditation that much. At least what we think meditation is. You know, if we think meditation is that point when we focus our attention on an object and then, you know, it doesn't talk about that too much. You know, there's a couple of, you know, a few places where that's talk, it's touched upon. But it's seen very much in a much wider context of training. You know, this is because, you know, the meditation arises out of the training, out of the overall training. Meditation is a crystallization of the training when we sit still, you know, when we're walking, when we're focusing inwardly. It's a crystallization of the whole training. It deepens the training. It takes the mind to deeper ranges of consciousness than we normally may normally experience. So if it's taking the essence of the training to deeper levels, to a wider range, and yet the essence of the training remains the same, then it's through not really fulfilling the essence of the training that we find meditation, you know, relatively simple things, rather difficult. You know, like sitting still, focusing on the breathing, breathing in, breathing out, staying there for long periods of time without slipping off, without getting caught up in thoughts, without 
feeling discomfort, uh, all the many things that happen to us. You know, why is it so darn hard? Mm. And the essence of the training, you look at that, you know, so again to come back to this, it will not be irrelevant to your meditation. It is the the essence of the training, the essence of the Dhamma practice, which we consider, we contemplate, we try, and meditation gives us a way to really directly get a real feeling for these. They're not just theories, they're not just principles, they're not just ideological you know, statements, they're actually felt realities. And uh, you know, this is expressed in various ways, you know, the, the relinquishment of greed, hatred, delusion, you know, really getting to feel what greed feels like. It's a powerful, the word really uses powerful words, you know, the greed experience, or the gratification, that, the slavering mouth of the mind. <laughs> it kind of, you know, more. Aversion, the kind of sourness, the recoiling, the distaste, the spitting out, the not going, the resistance. Delusion, it's not so clear. Delusion is exactly not so clear. But one of the ways it's described is the, um, it's the misperception of vipalasas, um, distortions. Seeing happiness in what really isn't there, seeing happiness in what isn't actually happiness. Mm. You know, seeing permanence in what really isn't lasting, or looking for permanence in what isn't lasting. Mm. Sensing self in what really doesn't conform to the parameters of self. It's not in control, it's not owned, it's not possessed, it does not form a coherent, consistent being. Just form flickering phantoms. That's why we have so many of them. You know, we don't have one self. Flickering phantoms, a whole kaleidoscope of them. And yet we still hold on to the idea that we are one. Because the one that we're with at the moment feels like the real one till tomorrow. Yeah. So we're seeing these things, we're imagining these things, holding these things up. Something is, you know, that which we can mm, see as the beautiful or the pleasing, mm, permanently, has that quality in it, is innately embedded in that object. Mm, something is permanent, something is lasting, substantial, we can, you know, it actually isn't so. Something is satisfying, but actually does not satisfy, does not lead to quenching, does not lead to enough, but leads to another one of those would be nice. <laughs> a lot of that. Does not lead to this is, you know, mine, but this is to leads to this trying to own, trying to hold on, trying to have something, trying to control something, 
trying to, trying to be something but not quite making it. This is anatta, trying to become something and nearly getting there sometimes but not quite getting it, making it. Something's wrong with me because I'm not quite making it to this place of being something final, completed. There must be some, no, there's nothing wrong with you. That's, that's the way, that's exactly right. <laughs> Have you noticed that? So delusion is the hard one to, to really fathom because it doesn't flare like greed. It's less object-oriented. It doesn't rage like hatred or aversion. It doesn't burn. It's a kind of creator of phantoms, a magician, a juggler, a conjurer, producing objects we half see, half imagine, blurred, keeps us blurring with the excitement. We don't really get a look at it clearly, what we're looking at, what we're really experiencing. So important just to, in one's training, in one's cultivation, just to have these most pauses, the heedfulness, the pause. Heedfulness is the path to the deathless. Pausing. What's going on here? You know, what am I, what's being chased? What's being pursued? What's being, you know, anguished over? Where is it? <laughs> and it's, where really is it? It's, it's this, uh, it's an impression in the mind, impression in the heart over what I could be, should be, what she didn't say to me, what he could have done, what I hope they'll do, what I dread they'll do, what I really got to make sure happens. Other, you know, these are, the, these are the currents that run across the heart, aren't they? What I could be like if I did this long enough, what I, perhaps I am like because I've got one of these. You know, it's kind of these impressions that run across the mind, run across the surface of the mind. Illusory, beguiling, fleeting, it's strangely dazzling. And you pause, you what is that? You know, what is that? So heedfulness is the path to the deathless. And what is the deathless? So one way in which this is uh, talked about by the Buddha is the mind's freedom from all grasping, from all substrate, from all hanging on, from all holding, from all feeding upon, from grasping, clinging, or padana. The heart's freedom from that. This is the deathless. So, what's that? Is it a thing? Is it <laughs> no, because if it was a thing, you'd better grasp it, wouldn't you? <laughs> so, the, so how do I get that non-grasping stuff? 
how long will it take before I get that hold, hold of that real good firm grasp on that? Oh, oh no, that's <laughs> wrong, wrong, <laughs> wrong system. Yeah. Yeah. So it's never really a discrete object, it's a change of heart that's required, a change of heart, which is a much more subtle but truthful process, really. I think I was saying yesterday, just to say it again, the heart doesn't really experience objects in the way that the eye experiences objects, or the tongue, or the nose, or the you know, the sense organs. It doesn't it's not, it doesn't it doesn't see anything? It doesn't hear anything? It doesn't taste anything? It doesn't touch anything? It doesn't smell anything? None of that. What it receives are impressions, perceptions, and feelings. Yeah. And perceptions are what? They are these kind of resonances, resonances of attraction, beauty, resonances of things that are souring, impressions of what happened yesterday, what could happen, impressions of what people's faces remind me of impressions of you know color what colors do to me not not things in themselves but the impressions of them the perceptions of them this is what the heart experiences perception and feeling and feelings the push pleasure and the recoiling of displeasure that's all. It, that's what it experiences. That's its input, and around that it generates intentions, impulses, movements of you know, good. You could call them skillful. You know, you know, compassion, altruism. You know, that inclination. You hear somebody's in trouble. That touches your heart. You feel that pang of sorrow or regret and something rises up to, oh, I'm not going to help her, you know. You don't actually experience her, you experience an impression of her and you resonate with that. That's what happens, isn't it? Hmm? Or you get something comes, you know, advertisement presents something, this wonderful new attractive thing and you get this sense of wonderful attractive new, boom. <laughs> Better have one of those, whatever it is. <laughs> you know, so it experiences perceptions and the feelings of pleasure, displeasure that go along with it. And, re- and the responses we make could be based upon you know, greed or non-greed, aversion or non-aversion. But they're always so often just tainted with some quality of delusion. We, we imagine there are real solid things there. The heart does not experience solid things, it experiences the effects of things. The perceptions, the feelings, the impressions. And this may not sound, or so what, but actually what this means is there's nothing really bothering you. The the heart is rather like a lake with the impressions of the moon, 
the stars, the wind ruffling the water, the lake is really okay. It's this rippling and shimmering that dazzles us, the surface of it, boiling and shimmering and dazzling and being spattered and affected. And then that, in that, we kind of focus on that. And there's the moon. There's the moon. Look at that moon sitting on the water. Don't tell me there's no moon in the water. I can see it. You know. <laughs> Looks like the real thing. You put your finger in it. Oh, where did it go? You know? So that's kind of one of the uh, ways we begin to check in with. Who is this person I'm worrying about? You shouldn't think he's going to say that to me again. I'm going to tell him what he's doing. (laughs) Who is he? Sitting in there and I'm I'm having a dialogue with him. (laughs) How have I got all these people inside me? (laughs) Who I argue with? (laughs) Nobody in there. There's not enough room in there. There's these perceptions and impressions and the feelings. Because there's nobody there, if we realize that, we could, you know, you come out of the belief in it and the hypnosis of it, then these perceptions are no longer being fed and they can dissolve. And the lake is quite still and calm, clear. Take some doing. Because there's a strong inclination to want there to be something. And this is what you know, grasping or clinging is about. It's a very powerful and easily, it's not a theory, is it? It's a nice, strong, grabbing, gripply kind of word. You know, grasp. It's not like a, a theoretical, philosophical concept. You get the feeling for it. And I think the Buddha was quite a, uh, a master of language, presenting really strong, sometimes distinctly tactile impressions, images. Mm. Because when you're training and cultivating, looking into the mind, you know, using a word like grasp, cling, <laughs> And give you a sense of a particular effect that runs through the heart of tightening up, feeding on, holding, you know, tightening up, feeding upon something. So upadana sometimes is translated as feeding upon, a kind of real going into and fondling and handling and contracting and, you know, absorbing into, a clinging. You know? Can you feel that? This is why, you know, we're on the lookout for that, and then our meditation is a time when we really check into the heart, and you want to, want to look out for that experience. So the heart does not experience distinct objects, it experiences these field effects, a stirred up heart, uh, a, a passionate heart, a sorrowing heart, you know, a fearful heart. And this flickering can shift quicker than the wind blowing across the lake. It, the ripple can change. 
the Buddha said, there's no way I can describe how quickly it can change. It's just flip. It's like the, like the wind dancing over the water and you get these rippling effects. It can shift like that. But we detect some of these strong currents, the, the fearing, the anxious. What would happen if I've got to make it work, if I don't have to get that done by Tuesday? And, so, you know, you know. and then as you're kind of beginning to sort of uh, being, you know, hope you're doing this a lot, actually not just beginning, but re- being reminded of, all the complexity of our thought systems, you try and just really crunch that piece of narrative down to just one word. Instead of, you know, I've got to get this done by Tuesday because if I don't, I'm going to get fired and da 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 I'm going to lose my house and job and people will hate me forever and I'll be destitute on the street and I'm going to have to emigrate to Puerto Rico and I'll live in a shack. <laughs> Okay, let's just crunch that down. <laughs> One word, anxious. <laughs> so that we get to the point, this is Manisikara, you only saw Manisikara, just trimming it, getting the felt sense, and then now you've got something anxious. Is that true? Yeah, that's part of it. True. There could be another one behind that, like a sad or depressed by this anxiety, because I have it so much, I'm tired of it. But we said anxiously. Then you really feeling the rippling in the heart is around that. So at least we know what we've got to, you know, work with. So, you know, this sense of the process of papancha, proliferation, whereby these currents, these effects, such as of fearfulness or anxiety, are spun out into complex narratives describing the world of self and other, past and future, obligation, necessity, requirement, duties, rights, and so forth. You know, this whole cascade of a world comes out of this current, one current anxiety, for example. Could be guilt, could be irritation, could, you know, these currents. And you're just taking it down to that those currents. Yeah. So part of the part of the process of of grasping, of clinging, as as this these effects are held to, because the heart is also still under the belief that there's something to hang on to. This is a kind of fundamental assumption. The heart has sort of seeded in it. There's something to hold to. So I don't know what it is, so I just hold on to everything. <laughs> In case I miss one, you know. It's not a logical process, it's an instinct just to hold. It holds and it concocts this diverse world. And it all rises from citta. So citta sankara is the heart program, the heart activity, the heart formulation, which is both engendered by these perceptions and feelings and generates a world of past and future self and other with all kinds of programs in it. Need, necessity, obligation, responsibility, compulsion, fear, intimidation, you know, and it goes on like that. This is, so 
you know, that we can experience. And it goes on with everything. You know, when you meditate, it goes on with that. And trying to get that meditation, trying to find something to hold on to in that. And it proliferates into, you know, got to make it, performance, should be good at this by now, got to get it done, got to achieve it, got to get somewhere, um, you know, inadequate, can't do it, not right. And so it proliferates another world of self, comes pro- proliferated out of that, trying to find something to hold, to grasp on, hold on to. This is the kind of, you might say, it's the fundamental mother of all delusions, is this that grasping will get us happy, will get us steady, will get us to the deathless. And the Buddha says, deathless is the mind's release from all grasping. Mm. How do you get that then? Mm. It's only the jitta, in the jitta, that that could happen. Because actually there's nothing to, to hold on to. And as you begin to you know, look into that, you realize if you begin to contemplate things as they actually are, thoughts, impressions, really as they are, as thoughts and impressions, not as belonging to a real solid world, not as belonging to a real solid self, because you, you examine those, they don't actually, where are they, you know? Where is that real solid world? Where is that real solid self? You can kind of keep checking in with these things. Yeah. So naturally, you know, we're looking around and we see sights and sounds and colors and hear things and think, oh, it's there. And you go and you, oh, well, it's funny, it just seems like another set of changing circumstances. Come to Spirit Rock. So as a concept, Spirit Rock's a nice, easy concept, steady concept. Spirit Rock. There you are, got it. You come here, which, where's Spirit Rock? Is it the floor? Is it in the ceiling? Is it in the landscape? Is it the system? Is it the teacher's governing body? Is it, what is it? You know, and when you're actually at Spirit Rock, you can't find Spirit Rock. <laughs> when you get here, all you find is, well, there's the management, and there's the kitchen, and there's the yogis, and there's a Dhamma hall, and there's the things we should do, and there's the conference, and there's the retreat, and there's, you know, the animals, and there's this, but there's no spirit rock. There's just changing circumstances. Conditions that we can lump together as a concept, but where is it? Just something that's constructed. Changing circumstances is all we find. Changing circumstances and uh, without wishing to find fault with Spirit Rock, I think probably everybody who is in touch with it would say, not quite satisfactory. 
<laughs> but that's not his fault because everything's like that. <laughs> There's always something quite, not quite right. Something just slipped off. Somebody forgot something. Somebody didn't ring the bell on time, didn't switch the mic on, the food was a little bit late. And the yogi didn't do that job, and that broke down, and da 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 da. You know, nothing going wrong. Nothing's going wrong. Just life as usual. <laughs> life as usual. You know. And then when we really see it as it is, know it as it is. We don't set up this expectation, this tension, this expectation, this intolerance, this demandingness that something be what it can't be. You expect that moon in the lake to be a solid, real object that won't disappear when you poke your finger in it. And you, so you, you begin to recognize it's much better to just let the, the concept dissolve into a set of changing circumstances and conditions and get on with it, you know. Just generate compassion and kindness and tolerance and responsibility and friendliness and attention and being attentive and being willing to learn and all the right things and yeah, you sort of get on with it. And then you find not only you're much happier that way because you've taken charge. You begin to stop grasping at a perception and instead do something. So, you know, this is why it's called a path of practice. Everything is practice, because everything tempts us to hold it as a, as a thing, you know, as a person, person outside me, person here, a lot of place, a situation, or a system, technique, you know, give me the right system, it's on paper, there it is, got it. No, you haven't got it. Do it. <laughs> Which is all this whole generation of, you know, what we try and bring to light all the time. Be attentive. Be careful. Be prepared to make mistakes. Learn about it. Learn about yourself. Strengthen yourself. Calm yourself. You know, actually do action. Do karma. Too skillful karma. So you start to translate the world of objects and solid things, even if they're solid conceptual things, into dynamic of experience, of relational experience. And then it starts to starts to work. Even kind of not very profound objects can work. You know, even you know, sweeping the sweeping the corridor can work. better than that than meditating actually in terms of you know attentiveness and hold how the broom so you're not sort of driving into the ground how to be attentive to where you sweep around how to not make an obsession out of it like you're to clean the whole world <laughs> to utter pr pristine purity <laughs> you start to see the programs of 
of, of grasping. Hmm? The Buddha said, you know, you can, you know, to flesh it out, you can put it under four main heads, grasping at sense, sense pleasure, grasping at sense objects, Mm. grasping at um, becoming and non-becoming, which is, if you like, performance, wanting to get places, wanting to be something, wanting to increase wanting to persist, wanting to last, wanting to go on, wanting, looking for the next moment, trying to build things up, that's the becoming instinct. And then, or grasping at non-becoming, which is get me out of here, I want to stop, don't want to have to, you know, and where's the back door, uh, let me sh- shut things down, let me not be here, avoiding things, avoiding responsibilities. Grasping at what he called systems and customs, Mm-hmm. systems and customs and then grasping the sense of self just to look at that again remember with sense objects you don't grasp sense objects you grasp your impressions of them your perceptions the meanings they signify mm-hmm. how good is a banana when you're hungry very good how good is a hundredth banana not very good <laughs> Yeah. So it's not the banana, is it? It's what it means to you at any given time. Depending on how hungry you are, whether you've just eaten 99 before that, probably 100th banana is an utterly sickening experience. <laughs> <laughs> First banana was a source of delight and gratitude. So it's not the poor old banana. It's not its fault. <laughs> banana has not changed from being pleasant to unpleasant. It's, your, you know, it's just your appetites and your tastes have made it that way. Banana is just doing its thing. <laughs> it wasn't born on the planet to satisfy you. It's just bananaing. <laughs> and yet, you know, we say to these things, make me happy, you know car, make me happy, make me powerful, make me glamorous, clothes, make me stylish, make me interesting, make me hip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it's still the same old dumpy old me inside another set of gear, isn't it? <laughs> so you get another one to, make, to try and make it up, it didn't quite work, try another one. So the mind is chasing these impressions of pleasurability, attractiveness, and you can't find a thing that's going to do it. It's not the sense objects, it's these shadow impressions of permanence, satisfaction, beauty, ownership that, that come along with that. It's these underlying currents that make these impressions so meaningful to us. Then we also have that, you know, that's the, one of the first things that we get, you know, caught in. So certainly life as a renunciant, you know, when you actually have a lot of restraint around these things, and not much to do, you haven't got much to do, these impressions, these sense objects can be almost psychedelic in their intensity. You know, like a banana. <laughs> <You know. laughs> 
a Mars bar, a whole Mars bar to myself. <laughs> Never want anything else, you know. So it's food, drink, sexuality, because you're never going to have that again. Never again? Never? <laughs> you know, so the, the more that, that never again, you know, well, that must be really good. So you have these kind of sexual fantasies, impressions and images. Actually, if it's so great, why haven't people who, who are sexually active totally blissed out all the time? There's <laughs> a... You know, most people who who have the allowance to be sexually active aren't sexually active all the time and it gets to kind of be something that's, well, you know, part of it, but really any relationship is very, not a very significant part of that. But just how the, the thing, you know, these these things can seem so dazzling because it's not the thing, it's the perception. Which stays as an impression, a flickering mirage in the mind. And we still believe it as being something that's relating to a real thing. So much so that, you know, these, this is actually quite useful to the grasping of sense pleasure because it's fairly coarse and you can really see that. You can see that how come this, this thing that, this coffee or chocolate or ice cream, whatever, that, that I ate when I was a lay person while I was talking to somebody else and listening to the music, it was such a small thing. And now the idea of one of them, you know, I would kill for. <laughs> Where did that come from, you know? <laughs> Something going wrong here. And you, realize, you know, I think the mind is putting a lot into this. So you begin to really see how the mind illuminates and it makes incandescent things that are just things. You feel the power of it. And then you begin to really start to question, is it the sense object? Or is it the mirage? Or is it the conjoining of the two? You know, and you begin to figure it out. It's the, it's the something wants to experience passion. Something wants to experience this charge of passionate feeling. Because that's something to grab hold of, something to feel flooded by. Yeah, something to be. And this takes us to, you know, the craving for becoming, to be lit up. And we can be lit up by a number of things, by performance, I'm the number one, you know, fastest athlete, greatest businessman, you know, whatever, I'm number one or number something, or I'm up there, I'm flooded, I'm filled with the sense of being something. And so quite a lot of our occupations can be just to achieve that experience of being flooded. Hmm? with being something. Because it gives us a sense of unity. It, it, it pushes away the doubts and the ambiguities. From that moment we are suddenly just that. Mm. The power of it. The intoxication of it. Dangerous stuff becoming. You know, you see, like in the world, you see these kind of tyrants who are just totally saturated in the power of being something. Being in charge, being number one. 
being whatever he is, you know. And to the point where they're you know, actually killing people and holding on to power and eventually someone's getting toppled and ripped apart by the mobs <laughs> rather than let go, you know. <laughs> I think it was that, uh, you know, Libyan Gaddafi, you know, they found him stuck in a drain pipe or something, still proclaiming himself to be in the right. <laughs> Wouldn't let go. You know, because you're so, it's like a drug. You become something. You are something. And to not be that would just too awful. So sometimes this power of becoming, you know, when people can't get there or lose it, they'll actually, you know, kill themselves rather than experience the loss of it. Loss of that being something. And we will fight and strain to get there very powerful you know now say in if you come to meditation you know, how much of it is wanting to be something to be filled to be flooded to be mm-hmm. to remove to get rid of all those kind of irritating bits and pieces of doubt and you know responsibility and I was just kind of really getting to a high and then I had to go and ring the bell ruin my retreat I was going through an amazing peak experience and then somebody banged the door or I had to go and you know got a headache or something blew it completely I was just on the verge of becoming enlightened and then (laughs) pop Becoming famous. Mm. You, know, you smell the drug. You don't want that. Dangerous stuff. And one of the ways we can really become something and it is through what's called systems and customs, attachment to these. You know, Attachment to views. So it's particularly, say, I think in monastic life when you can't really get that far in terms of becoming anything much because you're always in a community of just, you know, come back from teaching a retreat, you thought you were wonderful, you're teaching a retreat, and you come back to the monastery, no, no, no. It's just floop. <laughs> you know, nobody thinks you're wonderful anymore. <laughs> and then you can't have the sense object. So what you can have, you can have uh, get attached to systems and customs, which is our sense of some vineyard gets like that. You get really kind of get exactly right, line everything up right, exactly this that, and this commentary, this sub commentary, this. Authority says this, and when they say that, they just try and get it all sorted, just exactly right, you know, right routine. And then these human beings come along, won't, you know, these, keep ordaining human beings. It's a disaster. <laughs> human beings refuse to behave exactly right. 
keep telling them to, and they just keep <laughs> So it's so frustrating, exasperating. And, and then these things go, and then you just have opinions and views to hold on to. And then these are really, can get quite intense around that, because you haven't got the other things. Suddenly your grasping and clinging comes on to just, you know, your ditty, your view and opinion about, you know, anything really. So, of course, religions, we get very strong about this. The right, the pure, the authentic, and who's purest, the authentic, right, proper, da, 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 and then you squabbles and... Is it so? Who wants to be right and pure? If it's going to be that painful, <laughs> how much conflict? It's going to be kind of not very right, not very pure. Just get on with it. <laughs> you know, try to act with as much purity as, as I'm capable of, and to learn. Yeah, you because know, the rest is just too, too ugly. Righteousness. Well, these are the ways we build up this grasping to this uh, sense of self. You know, one will be flooded by something, one can have something, one can be filled with something, one can be right and solid and real, and that's it. You know, here we are. And, you know, it doesn't happen, does it? Who's, who, who will that be? How would that be? And you notice whenever you get it, whenever it seems you got it, you know, whenever it, like sometimes you get that and you say your meditation is going quite nicely, you feel it's calm and steady and quite steady. Got this calm, steady state. Now, now what do I do? What do I do with it now? And there's the sign. The sign is grasping. You're holding to this calm, steady state. So therefore, the sign of unsatisfactoriness comes up, the sign of self comes up, the sign of permanence comes up. I've got something that's lasting, solid. I want to have more of it. Yeah, And it's still not quite good enough, so what should I do? You know, so this is where we begin to see. Well, this is, you know, nothing wrong with this experience. There's still this underlying mythos, and samadhi itself is, you know, praised, but praised because of what it's taken, the skill, the activities that have been required, of the letting go that's been required, of the focusing that's been required, of the balancing that's been required, these beautiful skills that have come. And it's praise because from this skillful place, this consummation of skillfulness, we can begin to use that to see clearly. And this is the point where you don't want to get to that point and just hold on to it. This is like owning a car but never driving it. Owning the swankiest car in town but never driving the thing. You know, you got it. 
sort of, or it's, it's come. Now use it. And what do you use it for? And the Buddha said, use it for seeing things as they really are. And seeing things as they really are is the condition and the cause for becoming disenchanted with things, with grasping. Becoming disenchanted with grasping is the cause and the condition for knowledge and deliverance. So what is there to be seen as it really is? What is to be seen as it really is, is there's nothing to grasp. There's only these impressions of the graspable and this hip, this, this kind of quality, this tone of holding. Yeah. And when you begin to either contemplate the very quality of, of grasping, this tension, this tightness, this stuckness, and soften, loosen, you know, contemplate that. Is that skillful? Is that helpful? When you begin to really look into what is being held, whether it's just the, the glow of righteousness, I've got the right opinion here, I'm the true person, I'm the purest, the wisest, the clearest. You look at that. I don't know about that, whether that's really good for me. <laughs> good for me, good for the world. Yeah. Does it lead to cooling? Does it lead to dis- dissolution? Or does it lead to just another piece of, you know, one-upmanship? Mm. We begin to look into these phantom objects and see them as nothing you really want to grasp. They can be, no, that's pretty good, good for you, that's, that's clear, that's, yeah, that sounds good. But, you know, but that's as far. That's useful. Yeah. It's a useful thing. It's like you have a broom you can sweep with it, but you don't hold on to it looking at it. I've got the greatest broom in the world. Use it. Sweep. If you've even got the greatest broom in the world, you can still sweep with a second-hand broom. So then this is, we're not despising, you know, the uh, anything you know the world sense objects opinions systems customs observances yeah but you're seeing you know because this is what the world is made of or our appearances operate through these we just use them for dissolving for skillfulness for skillful conduct skillful action harmony Clarity, dispelling what needs to be dispelled. And as the Buddha self says, when you use your raft that you've built, you know, it doesn't have to be that great a raft, but as long as the thing floats, you use it, that raft, to get you to the other shore, and then you let it go. You don't carry it around on your head. This is possible. You know, because that these things are not permanent, they cannot be held, they do not last, they don't concoct, they don't give rise to a permanent self, there's no person grasping, 
there's no person to be blamed for grasping, there's just these energies and factors. So because the truth of the matter is there isn't anything to grasp, to hold on to, that's substantial and solid and real, check it out for yourself. It's that, you know, not just getting it with your head, of course, which is, but really beginning to feel that in your heart and feel also that the every time we release a little bit, we feel better. So check that one out. Check it out. And this is simple things, you know. You begin to sense that. So one of our, say, trainings, thoughts as a training, becomes an instinct in monastic life. Somebody gives you something, most immediately you want to find somebody to share it with. Because you you don't, what's the point of holding it? You give something, oh great, this gives me a chance to share it. Because that's better, isn't it? It makes you feel better. (laughs) You know, this is a very simple and, you know, you could say coarse, manifestation of really recognizing that the non-grasping feels better, feels more open, feels cleaner, feels more buoyant than the grasping. And you can check that one out. See, it's like me, you know, you get two or three people in a room to talk about anything, three opinions come up, four opinions probably, three people, four opinions. <laughs> And then you think, oh, no, I'm, I'm right, I'm right. But no, look, I'm right. Look, you shut up, I'm right. So it says so here. You know, feel that feels, and then feel what it feels like to go, well, yeah, yeah, well, whatever works for you, fine, good, good, yeah, that's great. Good luck, yeah, good. What feels better? Holding on <laughs> or letting go, you know? And you realize there is that, there's that, that movement of the heart, we can do that. We can do that. And as you begin to sense there's like almost a, a quality or a field, a spaciousness that you can let go into. You know, that's actually, when you let go, there's something. So if you let go into, what's that? You let go into immediacy, you let go into openness, what's that? You let go into non-turbulence, into clarity, you let go into happiness. And these are the marks, you know, if the deathless has any mark, you know, this is how we can sense it. And it's never something you can hold, but it's something that you you sense yourself, you sense that that clarity, that openness, that hearness. And I guess we all do that in degrees. Every moment of generosity is that moment is just that oh yeah. yeah. Every moment of Forgiveness is just that. Oh yeah. Every moment we come back into the body, into the just the simplicity of being here, there's that. Oh yeah. Well, why didn't I do anything else? 
oh yeah, you know, it's just here, isn't it? Every moment one of those, you, you kind of, you get a touch of it. You get a touch of it. It comes to you. And all you can do in it, really, is rest in it. Enjoy it. You can't hold it. And then, you know, so we, we get this, we touch this, this happens to us, I'm sure. This kind of process of meditation is the chance to deepen into that, to extend it, to pause longer, to look at the place where somewhere there is the relinquishment, what it feel what it feels like, a genuine relinquishment, like it's enough. Enough of that. What's that like? You know, what it's like to not have to be the da da da, just to be you know, what's that like? Isn't that free? Not to have to be competing, just to be free of definition. What's that like? Isn't that better? Easier? More livable? More options there? So, my encouragement to the assembly and uh, reminding you hopefully of things that you already know or are in touch with and maybe just need to be brought into focus. Um, so, my best wishes and encouragement for you all. Oh.